hey all this was a little bit too long for a single episode uh but not quite long enough to be two full parts that we release on two separate weeks so uh, we split this up into two parts and we're just going to release both at the same time for people who are not uh, cool guys like me who'd sit in basements all day and listen to podcasts while working so this is part one hope you enjoy it hey everyone welcome to neighbor science the only podcast about political economy and anime i am ryan salisbury i'm chris nivens today uh first of all i just want to get this out of the way i ran some calculations today and uh assuming that listener growth continues at a fixed rate which i'm I'm pretty sure is a safe assumption you know yeah growth rates don't usually change yeah three quarters Um, of a person per week or something (laughs) right 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 um yeah so assuming that happens um we will be making choppa money on the patreon in only 9400 years (laughs) how many so 9400 subscribers that's not bad that's not bad you know how many so how many chapos are we worth right now? That's one ninety four hundred. Yeah, basically, something like that. Is that basically what we're looking at? <laughs> yeah. um, so like, kidnap your friends. Yeah, kidnap your relatives. Yeah, um, steal steal your grandma's credit card. Put her credit card on the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, um, you know we'll, she she won't even notice. We will you be putting that. the we will be putting the money into anarchist investments. <laughs> Hell yeah! Already, I'm already looking at sale sale cargo, which uh, we talked about in the pre-show for the patreon uh which god damn i need to put all those out take some pre-show things up oh yeah for sure yeah i mean people are paying us so i should definitely do that but um i get done with the editing for the show and i'm just like i'm going to the bar now (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's what that's what i always do every time um okay so today we are talking about um we're we're continuing our our series on thalassocracy and domination through maritime trade with the Verenigde Oost-Indische Compagnie. The yeah. Dutch East India Company. Close. I, yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's like if an English person, if it, yeah, if an English person and a German person got like really fucking trashed together, uh-huh. you know, and then try to speak between like makeout sessions, then, <laughs> then that's how you get Dutch. <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Hold on. Verenigde Oost-Indische Compagnie. Verenigde, yeah, way too hard for me to pronounce. Oostindische compagnie. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's also a word. Uh, I thought it was guilders, but apparently it's hilders. 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 Yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely not even going to try pronouncing <laughs> any of these fucking Dutch words. Um, so we're going to call it the VOC. Um, that's Vak. the yeah, that's the initials in Dutch. Um, and again, it's known Fuck in English. Me. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> again, it's noted, known in English as the Dutch East India Company. Um, yes. So the VOC is probably the most studied business in history. Um, I think it just is the most studied business in history. Um, Basically. Yeah. Which makes it both easy to find information on, but difficult to decide which information to read and talk about. So, yeah. So it's kind of an overwhelming topic. It's kind of like the... I, I tried to do an episode on the EU, mm-hmm. and that's what it was like, except the information isn't so like readily available. Right. So <laughs> this was just like <laughs> a fucking blast to the skull of yeah. stuff. Like, just go on the Wikipedia the article Google for that, and it's the Wikipedia. insane. It's just like, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll, you could make a career out of other people's careers that were made on other people's careers <laughs> about studying this shit. Yeah. 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 Um, there's studies that are crazily specific on this yeah. topic. So I, I hope that we picked out some good info on this, um, trying to just cover, you know, what it is, 
what they did, what it was like, um, how they formed, how they fell, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, the VOC was a corporation. Uh, hold on. Oh, it's okay. I skipped a part. It's also one of the best pieces of evidence to support our understanding of business as equally constitutive of the state as as government. I don't know. That doesn't make sense. But, you know, business as part of the state, Um, an equal part of the state. Oh, as government is. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) Yes. As. Um, Yeah. Yes. Um, So the VOC was a corporation hardly different from those of today other than in scale. And it was. It also functioned as a de facto state, which, like, even among those who don't have the same opinion on mm-hmm. business as us, um, they acknowledge that the VOC functioned as as an actual state. Yep. So it, it had its own military forces, which um, wasn't totally uncommon prior to the 20th century. But um, you know, today, obviously, the U.S. is such a world dominating force, and so in favor of corporations that there's like no point in having your own military force. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're mercenaries for the u.s government right hmm. like blackwater slash yeah. xe slash academy slash whatever the fuck they're called yeah. now all those motherfuckers yeah eric prince's f- fiefdom um and guess where eric prince's ancestors are from uh the netherlands the netherlands sweet how interesting yeah yeah so on top of military forces uh the voc also had prisons uh it issued its own coinage it negotiated international treaties and uh it i mean its its purpose was to manage colonies so it possessed its own colonies it i think it had legal ownership of them and yeah. it basically just like gave its resources to the dutch state because that's who was paying it and chartering it yeah i think it was like cuz i don't have a again you know this shit is complicated and deep and there's like you could like sink entire decades of your life into studying the voc um but yeah, like what you're saying is I th- is is similar to my understanding, which is that the VOC was basically a much freer kind of like a, a like a shell corporation within yeah. the shell of of the Netherlands yeah. as a state, um, and so it was kind of ensconced in the state, and yeah. like they more or less traded freely between them. Yeah, and it was almost more like a I guess it was more like a modern technocratic state because yeah, basically at that yeah. point they definitely were still fully entrenched with monarchies in yeah. most places yeah um i think the french revolution started prior to the voc right i don't no, i have no, no idea no, what the no. timeline so, is what is that no. is that so, the 18th century yeah okay so the so like just to get people's heads straight on the chronology yeah. and to give us a little context this is hard when you haven't been in a history class for 10 plus years yeah yeah <laughs> i even had to brush up on it even yeah. though this is like kind of my shit but like um so the protestant reformation started Protestant reformations in Europe started, you know, in like the 14th through 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the 16th to 17th and that, century... And that basically undermined the centralized power of the Catholic Church, exactly, right? Exactly. Okay. Right. As, and, and that was entangled with a variety of kind of um, continental European uh, imperial powers. Right. Um, such as like the Habsburgs which is relevant to the Dutch. Yeah, so, they actually come up a lot in here, but we won't We won't, we won't really, because really the Habsburgs are themselves about a, little, a little bit like the VOC. They are, in, in terms of like, they, they take forever to really get into properly uh-huh. and have been endlessly researched. 
Um, their descendants are still unfortunately alive and kicking and Do they still have that wicked underbite. Yeah. And they <laughs> still, you can fucking, I looked at the fucking current like heads of house and uh-huh. I was like, yeah, they look like fucking Habsburgs. It's <laughs> oh my insane. God. They look like, I mean oh, like they're like great. slightly more photogenic, but it's really like, cool. Damn, there's a family resemblance because they're all fucking each Jesus. other. Yeah. But, um, yeah, if you ever want to know the extent of, um, how little social mobility there Ugh, really is in the yeah. world. Go look up uh, rare surname studies. Yep. And they basically take people who have really unique last names and they track their social position over hundreds of years, like yep. up to a thousand years. Yep. And basically social classes are stable over a th- at least yeah. a thousand years. Yeah. So. Until and unless you um, do that thing we like to talk about where you like, Get the Romanovs in a basement or something. Oh. You know? But but you know, we don't have to talk about that tonight. That's not what we're about <laughs> right. right now. Um but yeah, so so like the European wars of religion came out of the conflicts between centers of power which supported Protestantism. Okay. Uh which typically were in the north of Europe mm-hmm. because they saw the south of Europe, which was traditionally extremely Catholic because it was centered around Catholic centers of power and so forth. And it was clashing with, with Muslims, right? Right, yeah. right, yeah. And so there was this Mediterranean thing as well as like this kind of like Italian and Spanish thing. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of where you get a lot of this like Northern versus Southern European shit. Yeah. Um, and so like the, for example, like Martin Luther came about, uh, if you will, <laughs> he, he, he did his thing and the Saxon kings in the North mm-hmm. of Germany supported and protected him and it became this whole tussle. That's the other thing that's hard when you're reading about this is you, you always forget that most of like modern countries in Europe are just like glommed together from kingdoms, like many smaller kingdoms that existed in Europe for, you know, prior to the modern age. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, also let me correct myself. I believe it was just Lords at that point. Um, I was thinking Saxon Kings because I'm obsessed with like British history, (laughs) you know, for some weird reason. Um, but yeah, so, so the, the, the Saxons, and 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 so forth we're like oh you know luther's cool we like his thing and this is a chance for us to break away from like southern power mm-hmm. right um and, and so forth and so on so this this eventually right these tensions and the like different affiliations and peasant revolts and other things eventually develop into uh conflicts between clusters of power centers of power affiliations and coalitions mm-hmm. and so forth as protestantism becomes not just uh you know a protest and you know protesting um movement but also a political movement and a political core paid for by george soros po- paid for paid, by george paid soros exactly. <laughs> paid protestants yeah. by george yeah. soros yeah protestants <laughs> were like the liberals of the day with a little flavor you know and and so and now they're the like arch reactionaries which yeah, is fucking weird yeah, exactly because they got power yeah they did well with that yeah and so um oh, that that kind of tempers my idea doesn't it <laughs> like oh we need to just build power in any way we can and then we'll oh, just shit. become the ruling class oops exactly exactly <laughs> well and we'll then, be nice <laughs> right right yeah i well, promise we'll be nice i promise Those other guys yeah, but yeah so the issue of of protestant versus catholic and northern versus southern kind of congealed you know and you still see yeah. these patterns today right the south of. will rise again <laughs> <laughs> well in the states it was a little different you know um but yeah in, in europe i'm just a right? down home country catholic <laughs> exactly. so in europe you know you saw catholic and sort of anti-catholic um lines drawn mm-hmm. 
Uh, but because the Habsburgs, you know, again, not to touch too much on them, the Habsburgs had holdings all over Europe, okay. which sometimes were not even contiguous, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and so forth. Uh, then, then there were these like, um, the Spanish Habsburgs held the low countries more or less, and the Netherlands became Calvinist. Okay. Right. And, you know, which is its own, you know, barrel of fun. Uh, but then along the way they also decided well we don't want to be part of like this kind of spanish habsburg empire yeah. thing and so there was those wars so so anyway so the, like the dutch uh by the like early 17th century so the early 1600s were like kind of looking for some 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 clout they needed some some fucking power and they needed to uh do it quick because uh-huh. the spanish for hundreds of years, much like the French for hundreds of years, were just like a juggernaut, right? right. Um, and they were only picking up steam because of their their uh, their time in the New World, mm-hmm. quote unquote, and their you know their exploitation of the people there. So, and by the way, one we'll of the get things, into some of this other history in a minute. But yeah, yeah. One, one thing I read about um, the European colonial project is that mm-hmm. part of it was. I, I don't know how true this is. I just read it in one of the books that I have. I don't even fucking remember which one. I think it mm-hmm. might have been. Um, either the invention of capitalism by Perlman or the rise of free trade imperialism by Semmel. And uh-huh. basically, they were suggesting that the European colonial project was partly um, created out of a need to absorb excess capital. So they were like, hmm. they were building up all this capital at the time. Right. And they had, they started building up industry. Mm-hmm. And like, basically, they, they didn't, they didn't have a, enough demand right for th- its level of industry and right. so they were getting blue balls th- right so yeah. they basically s- established these colonies to like sell shit to right. the colonists and and also to you know obviously to get inputs for their industry as well right so. yeah that definitely makes sense um so what you're saying is basically there was an excess of finance Yes, and so they were like, "Well, where do we fucking what? What do we buy?" Right. It's kind of like, it's the rich person's dilemma, right? Right. Like, what the fuck do we spend our money on at this point? Right. Like, like the Bank of England was created right. to build to the British like Navy, shunt it out, and that's because they had they had the industry, right? But they oh, yeah. didn't have the they didn't have the money that they needed, so they created an institution that could just like create a bunch of all this capital, and then the capital could be used to feed into the industry to produce right. warships to go to other places to get more uh you know sinks for their outputs and sources for their inputs right yeah right it's like if you could if you could like build an implant called a bank into your body it would turn all your excess fat into like instant muscle yeah be like the scariest motherfucker alive yeah <laughs> but Hulk. then you but then like incentivized by that all you would ever do is just overeat <laughs> <laughs> and maybe even eat other people <laughs> so you, you're trying to be hulk but then you turn into the blob exactly right <laughs> like like the blob as bane yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so yeah. the voc was formed from it was actually formed from six different companies it was created out mm-hmm. of a state charter it was basically um they they had the idea that it would be uh less risky to conglomerate all these six different companies into one company mm-hmm. and it would be uh sort of sort of managed by the state but independent right. as well right um this is again um this is emblematic 
of the um, what you might call externalizing or like uh, outsourcing. Actually, better uh-huh. better term for it: outsourcing of risk, outsourcing of liability. Yeah, which embodies and informs capitalism today. Right, and they started right off the bat with that logic, and they like exploited that logic to the nth. Yeah. yeah. So I'll I'll get into the liability part right now. Yep. Then, um, so the VOC was one of the first limited liability companies. Um, it was it was a, a, a company that offered stocks, um, which was it wasn't the first one of those. Um, there were companies prior to that called joint stock companies, and basically the way those worked is, um, f- someone would uh, want to go on a sea voyage, mm-hmm. and th- so they would sell stock in the journey, mm-hmm. and it worked exactly like stock today. Right. You know, you buy a share, and then whatever the returns are. Um, you you gain on your on your share of it, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the VOC did something a little different. They created uh, or they not created. They uh, offered limited liability. So, um, in a joint stock company, if the voyage failed and you owed someone, uh, like if uh, sorry, if the venture had debts at the end of it, basically, right. then there would be no limit to the amount that you would have to pay the debt collectors. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a limited liability company, if you invest a thousand dollars, then that would be the most that you owe. You would mm-hmm. never, you would never have to pay for the company's debt. So if it went into debt, it would basically, you'd like liquidate all its assets and then right. that would go to the, um, the people you owe the debts to. That seems sensible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's how, Almost all com- almost all corporations work today. Yep. Maybe all of them. I don't know. I'm not going to look that up. Um, yeah, we'd have to look into that. But yeah. Um, so the structure, of course, is only possible with the support of the legal system. So yeah, again, exactly. this had to be a state creation. Yeah. There's no way this to do is, it otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Um, because why would like why would anyone agree to that unless? They were just like a legal mandate, you know? Right. I mean, obviously right. the investors would like that, but why would exactly. the people that would ostensibly be owed money if the, if the venture failed want to do that? Exactly. Exactly. They would have to go into it knowing that this was a requirement and the requirement would have to be enforced and the enforcement would have to come from some external body. Right. And in this case, the external body was traditionally the state, right. which was traditionally essentially a a military bureaucracy mm-hmm. of sorts, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just an aside about the actual, well, the oldest known limited liability company, it's called Stora. It's a Finnish company and it was formed in 12, 1288, 1288 to mine copper, which is pretty it's wild. Pretty old. Yeah. It's about as old, old as a lot of the oldest beers. Hey. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so the share of the company from 1288, which is still preserved today, uh, was granted to the bis- the bishop of uh, Vesteroas, uh, and he he was a bishop. Like a if you, if you're a dumbass atheist like me, that's a religious person. So a bishop. <laughs> At first, is, I thought it was like a feudal lord, yeah, and then I, yeah, I looked yeah. up bishop, and I was like, oh no, oh, it's like a, a church like, guy. Yeah, yeah. A bishop a is like a, is like a, um, a combination of a CEO and a mayor for yeah. the local church. Yeah. So, so he had a he had a share for an eighth of this company, Stora. Um, which is not bad. Which still exists today, Holy by shit. the way. Yeah. Does the bishop still exist? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, there is a 
um, curious a diocese of Vassaroas. Yeah. And huh. so they do have a bishop still. Huh. So oh. there's still technically a bishop of yeah. Vassaroas, but I'm assuming it's not the same guy. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I, I really Unless wonder. Unless he's doing the Peter Thiel treatment. Yeah, right. <laughs> just, just guzzling that blood. <laughs> um, I'm really curious if the if the diocese or whatever, the parish, the... Um, that, yeah, this this church entity like still has that share, you know. And, yeah, I mean, it and, still exists. And also, so how possible. well they're doing, you yeah. know. Yeah, like, yeah. Are they collecting compounded interest? They're like, oh, like, we don't need ties. We got capital yeah. gains. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, Which I think was the point. Yeah. So I I think this is really interesting um, that a bishop has like such a large stake in a company and yeah. illustrative of how like the church might have exercised its power. That that's one yeah. thing I'm still not that clear on. Is like, okay, the church was in control of society ostensibly Mm -hmm. but how how do they actually exercise that influence because i mean maybe it's just me not understanding religion at all but to me the idea that it was everything was controlled through like the sacraments just seems ridiculous to me they're like there's no fucking way that that's that was the extent of it so so the the history of the church in europe like the catholic church or even the orthodox church i guess although i'm less familiar with that uh the the catholic church was a political institution um there were there were christian churches locally you know before and there was a network of those churches pre-existing and then the catholic church kind of like willed itself into being okay because like this guy just one day was like i'm the pope and they're like but you're the bishop in rome and yes you're very influential because you're in rome and he's like nope we're calling me the pope now and you can fuck yourself (laughs) so then the orthodox guys were like well i don't really like that we're gonna have a patriarch and we're gonna go with it and and this is like the cliff notes and it's again extremely reductive because you know that i like to say long things about bad facts but like (laughs) um but yeah basically the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, it's it's astounding to me how fanatical people can be about it because, although at the same time it makes a lot of political sense, because they really just invented themselves. Yeah. And they were like, we're in charge now, out of Rome, we have this hierarchy. We They literally invented cardinals, right? Cardinals were just a fucking thing huh. all of a sudden. Okay. It was basically like all my faves get to hang out in red. And <laughs> my like, top eight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My top eight, you know, and most That's of the time... That's a MySpace joke for you youngins. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and most of the time, they were um, favorites of the Pope and also um, nobles and also Italian, just like the Pope was often a noble and also Italian. So that so he's, happened. He's, but so he's noble, but also a Guido. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these Guido nobles are running the church <laughs> and like, that's, you know, become normal after a thousand years, but like, like, Hey, have some of Christ's fucking blood, man. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, you want his fucking body too? I can't believe he's quitting after only four shots. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like, <laughs> hey, I'm going to take your baby and dip him in some fucking water. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I'm getting into like a Boston accent now. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I, yeah. And, and, and so the, you know, the Catholic church, and this is getting back into that and also prefacing like the existence of Protestantism, the cat, the Catholic church, uh, being this political thing soon became not just sort of an extremely cynical political body uh, of sorts, uh, at least at the top, but then it became extremely corrupt. Okay. And that's actually what led to the Reformation a few hundred years later. Right. And that's what led to blah, 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 blah. Indulgences blah, blah. Right, and, and so stuff. forth. Right. Fun. Okay. So, so Catholicism, um, as I think I put it in my notes, yeah, the Roman Catholic Church was constantly on the lookout for new sources of revenue mm-hmm. because it could ideologically compel people 
to contribute to its operations. Right. And it could then pay out, uh, you know, again, it would profit while it also paid out in the form of monuments, in yeah. the form of like minor charities right. and so forth. I, I guess you also have to think that since they didn't have a like a business class really mm-hmm. they had i'm sure they had merchants but they probably didn't exercise a very huge amount of influence at that point so yeah. they were probably controlling the vast majority of money that was actually flowing through society yeah merchants in the middle ages in europe as i understand it uh were largely held in the same regard as they were in japan so as they were we discussed low, earlier, low class. they were actually low class okay. because, again, same logic. Yeah, they were not considered to be producing anything of special use. Okay, they were simply facilitators, uh-huh. but it's all they ever did. And right. so people are like, "Well, they're they're whatever." And yeah. like, yeah, and they, they were do kind get of like rich, adventurers, right? But exactly. Yeah. But like, they're a bunch of fucking schemers, and like, yeah. some of them are cool, but we don't really like like them as a class. Uh-huh. And so there was a lot of suspicion around them. Also, up until I ran into one of them shysty merchants right, today. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so then when you know, there's there's a bunch of like Semitic and anti-Semitic shit that came into that as well. But yeah. like, that's a whole other topic that we right. should get into at some point. Yeah maybe another episode about like anti-Semitism and the means of distribution. Right. Um, we should get Jeremy Corbyn on that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Jeremy. Hey, why don't you want to drink the blood? <laughs> but, um, yeah. So there's a bunch of stuff involved in this. Um, but ultimately the Catholic church, the institution or the, or the organization, if you will, not like individuals so much, uh, was like really interested in political power and the ability to mobilize force and the ability and the ability to mobilize ideological co- uh, compulsion, mm-hmm. um, which was their kind of specialty as we've seen ever since they yeah. became a thing. Um, and that had to be where like all the cynical grifters were going. Too, yeah, right? exactly. Well, they had to kind of compete with them or, or else absorb them. Right. You know? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's where we're at in this, in this, I guess. So these Vastaros guys, the bishop had an eighth of the company. Right, yeah. And um, so the, the the company had a charter granted by uh, King Magnus IV of Sweden, but it, not until 1347. So they were in operation for almost 100 years mm. before, I guess 60 years, not, not that close, but um, 59 years <laughs> <laughs> um, they were in operation before they had an official charter, which is... I don't. I wonder how that worked. I guess they just offered it, shares and yeah, it, yeah. It might have been just like uh, like local arrangements, you know, because they all knew each other. I would assume. Yeah. You know how like communitarian kind of shit right. tends to happen. Yeah. And then, oh well, you know, let's just institutionalize this. You know, yeah. put it on paper. And so um, during the 17th century, um, you know, because it was around that long, mm-hmm. it's still around today again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it merged with another company, but I can't remember what its name was. Um, but anyway, during the 17th century, the mine produced a huge proportion of the world's copper up to two thirds at some point. Two thirds. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. So they were, they were a pretty influential company and they were um, the earliest known limited liability company. That was a yeah. very large segue. Um, another modern characteristic of the VOC Getting back to the actual VOC, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, was the fact that it was a persistent organization. So, um, like I mentioned earlier, um, with joint stock companies, right? It, they they were literally funding one voyage. So, yes. they would they would say, "I'm going to go to the Spice Islands right. and and pick up some cloves <laughs> Good and <luck>. come back." <laughs> and th- so people would yeah. fund that one voyage, right? Um, raise capital for it, send them over there, and then when they come back, the organization's assets would just be liquidated, right? 
Right. Um, and it was extremely risky because obviously the voyage could fail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the ship could be sunk uh, by storms or raided by pirates or the crew could be killed off by disease. Right. Um, Very common. Yeah. And even if it was successful, um, it, by the time they come back, the price of whatever they were trying to right. trade could have changed and made it unprofitable. Could completely destroyed the worth of the enterprise. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was extremely risky to get into any kind of right. joint stock company mm-hmm. um, until uh, the VOC came around mm-hmm. and they decided uh, we're just going to form a persistent organization. Right. We're going to have multiple voyages, and you're yeah. just going to be investing in the long in the long term health of the company. Right. Right. Um, yeah, so, um, so this is basically where they began to enter into the business of the Phoenicians, you know, yeah. tying back to our, our first episode on this right. is that they're like, we're not just going to do one trip. We're going to actually establish a fucking route right. that we're in charge of, uh, if we can, or a network even if yeah. we're lucky, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the VOC was involved in numerous trades um, and by the way, I don't, I don't think we've mentioned this yet somehow, but, um, they were, they were mainly centered in Indonesia. That was like their yep. colonial holdings. Yep. Um, so they were involved in numerous trades among them, metals, shipbuilding, spices, sugarcane, silk, porcelain, metal. I put metals twice, uh, livestock, tea, grain, rice, soybeans, and wine. But it, I think Which, it was mostly spices though. Yeah. Yeah. The spices was like their sort of their trademark yeah. product. Um, but let's like go real quick over these, over these products um, that we've listed. So metals are obviously important for yeah. for like the reasons that I think we all understand because we live in this I age. Think, I think I think much of it was precious metals, not oh, necessarily yeah. like yeah, so iron. silver, gold, etc. Yeah. yeah, especially because, I mean, shipping is the cheapest mode of transportation, but yep. it's still, you know, structural metals are hard to move around. Yeah, exactly. That's not something they would probably be doing back then when they didn't have <laughs> giant, humongous uh, diesel-powered right, ships that right. could just and like, like plow through yeah. ocean currents yeah, and not have to yeah. worry about anything. Yeah. Um, so metals are a big deal either way, but yeah, precious metals uh, at the time because of the mercantilist bent of the various European empires. Yeah, they're obsessed with getting bullion. Yeah, they wanted bullion. Silver and gold were really in demand. Right. So if the Dutch could actually procure that, then they could fucking... Like, they could literally tell their former overlords, the Spanish, like, we have... 300 tons of uh, silver. Yeah. So like, you know, either suck my dick or die. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, th- this was still before they realized that money was completely just fiat, yeah. that the value of money was just right. created through state force and that right. they didn't have to have like a, an actual backing to it. Exactly. Although I, I've heard an alternative hypothesis mm-hmm. for why they would have used precious metals for coins, which is that if uh, a government minted or if, Someone minted coins because mm-hmm. there were private coins back then too. Right. Um, if someone minted coins and the coin was debased and lost its value, then the metal that it was made of could be melted down and sold for some other yeah. form of currency. And so the people that invested, so to speak, in the coin mm-hmm. uh, wouldn't be out so much if it if it didn't work out. Yeah, I think I think you're you're basically on the right track. Like my perspective is similar. Um, and again, this is all theory, people. So it's like you know, it's not really hammered down. 
um, because history is a lot shakier than most of us realize. Um, um, actually, a theory is a scientific explanation <laughs> that requires a substantial amount of evidence. Uh, so, you, mm. you're right. This I used is to be my, that guy in like ninth grade. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's fair, right? But okay, I spent way too much time on TalkOrigins.com, oh, oh, which right. is like the um, that was the site to uh, fact check anyone's claims about creationism. Oh, oh it's pretty yeah. great. Nice. nice. <laughs> So instead of theory, I'll say this is my three beer salute. Um, but but uh, basically, it was not only the ability to liquidate metals to create coinage or whatever, uh, but you have to think about if you have more of those metals which are used in a standard way because silver and gold um, are more... Well, gold in particular, right, does does not rust or tarnish or anything like that. It's very malleable. It's, it's extremely unique that way, um, and it doesn't poison you like mercury or something. But like, it's the best material to make chains out of. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and then silver is pretty good too. It's not yeah. you know perfect, but it's pretty great. That's when um, you're that's when you're um, you know gold. Yeah. And then when you're plat, you get you get gold. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. When you're triple plat, you get yeah. plat. Yeah. <laughs> then then you get right it's like the price of money you know <laughs> you get you get uh you get wet you know yeah <laughs> that's right um but basically the control over the supply also means your control over your own ability to manipulate the current speed so it was, yeah. it was like it was like a at the time when you couldn't necessarily just like fell a hundred thousand trees and uh-huh. pulp them and turn them into paper currency on the idea of fiat um and you couldn't obviously do digital credit or anything right what you were going to do is you're going to have those physical coins as i mean they had blockchain back then had. but it's very slow <laughs> yeah, right. you just <laughs> you had to have you had to have a whole army of yeah, monks doing just, these calculations just, by hand just scribbling yeah, and then yeah. one of them you know you'd have this whole big room Flipping. with like hundreds of them yeah. and then once one of them finally solved one of the hashes mm-hmm. for the next block, they would wave it up in the air, yeah. and then the bishop would right. come by and check their work. Right. And right. Uh, if, yeah, if it wasn't correct, they would get 40 least. lashes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, computing. <laughs> if you liked that joke, you should read... Um, uh, what's his name? Chi-Chin Lu's um, The Three Body Problem. Uh, no, not Chi-Chin Chong. <laughs> um, um, the, the the novel called the three body problem and okay. and the trilogy that it it kicks off because there's a lot of interesting like computing science fiction involved anyway besides that so yeah the control over the ability to manipulate the currency was mm-hmm. at the time uh, very limited by material concerns such as you know having alloys at your yeah. disposal um, and so the more of silver and gold you could have the you know in bullion. Um, you basically needed mines and slaves. Yeah, you literally needed yeah. material in order to make the money because right. those were the tokens by which you controlled labor. Yeah, right. And so if you could control the control, yeah, you know that was the state's real concern. And and let's see, since we're on the subject, yep. um, let's just talk about the currency because I have a whole section. Let's on do that it here. Um, back to the trade after that. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with this part about seniorage. So oh yeah, very yeah, important. So very important. Yeah, seniorage is the value of a coin above. The raw material that it's made of. So mm-hmm. all, all like viable quote unquote currencies have that. Um, so value is a very ideological term. So I'll say that I specifically mean <laughs> yes. the amount of labor or uh, political power that the coin can mobilize above the amount of labor or power needed to produce 
the coin. Mm-hmm. That's what seniorage is. Mm-hmm. So all coins must have seniorage for them to be worth issuing. So it would be pointless to bother issuing a coin unless you get more out of it than you put in. So right. the idea is um, I need a I need a labor force that's bigger than what I can uh, directly subjugate through like the people that are loyal to me. Right. So I'm going to create a coin, and then if anyone objects to you know, not working for the coin, then I'll send right. the people that are loyal to me to go punish them for right. that. Exactly. And they'll be made an example of, and then other people will use the coin to avoid punishment. Exactly, exactly. Um, so there are exceptions to this, such as the incredibly stupid situation in the U.S. where uh, Big Zinc consistently prevents the U.S. government from getting rid of the penny, even though <laughs> a penny won't buy the metal it's made of. But the rest of the U.S. Uh, currency has seniorage. Yep. Um, so prior to the modern age, where industry has few limits... In the medieval and ancient periods, the cost to issue coins was significant, so it was important that they last a long time. Um, so one technique used to extend the lifespan of coins is called countermarking, mm-hmm. uh, which is just some sort of stamp on top of the coin's original stamp. Um, a countermark could change the value of a coin or indicate that it's intended for use in a different location than where it was originally minted. So um, this doesn't happen at all anymore. Uh, I mean, I well... I would say no. It doesn't really happen at all. Not that it's, I'm aware it's of. slightly different. Basically, like some some countries would import coins from elsewhere. Right. Um, there's situations like that where, like, like Venezuela has U.S. dollars in use. Yep. But but that's that's very different. I think yeah. I think because, it's different because that has more to do with um, government power. To some One, extent. the petrodollar. Yes. The and petrodollar. two, just the fact that the U.S. has control of these global financial organizations that mandate which is it's basically written into the Bretton woods and shit Um, yeah and everything that's come since i should say yeah this was literally they would like they would say oh we need coins but we don't have any of our own so they would like import like japan imported coins from china right like we mentioned in because it was a practical concern and a practical solution they're like well you know yeah like you said we don't have this it it wasn't so much it wasn't so much a, a foreign state trying to exert their influence. Right. It was like we need a physical supply that yeah. we can just remaster, as, essentially. Yeah. 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 It was like the action. It was the action of a weak state rather than the action of a strong state to Imposing. subjugate a weaker right. state. Exactly. Yeah. The VOC uh, used countermarking on uh, coins produced in its territory as well as on some foreign coins from Japan and India. Um, the modern states of Japan and India uh, to use for themselves. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if the practice of countermarking a locale's coins is a, a power grab or the outcome of one um, or a combination. Um, as in like the VOC had sufficient power to force the population to accept the countermarked uh, coin already. But in doing so, they gained even more power over the people yeah. um, in the area. That's, that's, that's a very interesting uh, tactic that yeah i think that that's one of those things where to my mind it's sort of both like it's the outcome of them having leverage enough or or some kind of maybe uh good fortune on their part to get enough coins and be able to enforce the the countermarked value that would then the power grab is not so much um in countermarking but in the leverage that you gain by sabotaging the existing coin pool on the other side okay right and this is the dialectic <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly and so you're you know it's the standard like you know if i if i cost you one or if i win one i cost you one uh-huh 
in in a zero sum situation yeah right and so they're like well it in these cases it was more or less zero sum beyond either party's ability to produce more coinage right but even then um they were yeah they were sabotaging and eroding the other party's ability to um counter their their currency power uh-huh. because they could literally they could literally seize um you know half the coins of the other party right let's just say theoretically hypothetically um and then countermark those even if it was just like sitting and this is kind of common in those areas eras you know and this is why privateers pirates did this sort of shit they would just seize like a box of fucking coins and be uh-huh. like these are ours now yeah right i'm rich now and you're like, well, why? Because that's just their currency. No, in fact, I can countermark this or I can tr- trade this in like a third-party proxy right. and get all sorts of fucking goods. So if they were able to seize and or um, barter for a significant uh, proportion of the other party's pool of currency mm-hmm. and then countermark it, then they controlled that currency. Yeah. You know, uh, like unit, uh, yeah, by unit, you right. know. And then that other party had fewer pieces to deal with. And this was before the notion, I believe, of um, like inflation of a currency per se. Right. Because there wasn't this conceit of like a vast market in which everything is has got like these limited parameters. Floating prices. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 You either have it or you don't. Right. You, do you want to have a shootout or do you want to just like give me more than what you were going to give me? Yeah. You know, because I have even more and even more and even more. Yeah. You know. And th- this also kind of um, touches on one of the points in uh, David Graeber's debt mm-hmm. where he talks about like why why would anyone ever use a coin over a credit system. Right. And one of his answers was because coins can be stolen. Yeah. And credit can't. Right. So, uh, you know, an, an upstart state could steal a bunch of coins yes. and use those for exactly itself. They, to, they could, they could marshal yeah. other capacities than right. simple financial, uh, uh, gaming. Right. Um, so for the, for the VOC, um, the company's directors in Amsterdam, um, I'm just reading from a Wikipedia article, so uh, oh, passage. Um, so the company's directors sitting in Amsterdam adopted a unit of account system based on a notional. Heilder. I'm going to overdub that too. Um, <laughs> divided into twenty notional. Stivers. Uh, this followed Dutch practice and reflected on the tendency for coins to get debased over time, and hence the nominal uh, value of a given weight of silver to increase. The Reichsdalder. Uh, with 25 points, who cares how much silver it has, was declared the <laughs> Dutch national coin in 1606 uh-huh. and valued at uh, 47... Uh, a rate increased to 48... Stivers. In 1608. The Stivers. And two... St- coins had a slightly different silver weight. Blah, blah, blah. Um, mm. In practice, the Reichsdalder uh, proved less desirable than the better-known Spanish... Ocho Real coin, and um, as the Reichsdalder contained more silver, uh, they disappeared from circulation. So people mm-hmm. uh, melted down the Reichsdalders right. for silver, um, and then used the <laughs> Spanish Ocho because Real. Because competition over currency supply yeah. and bullion. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, so as a result, the VOC shipped the uh, Spanish Ocho Real in uh, large quantities, and it was the standard large coin of the Indies 
uh, used in official transactions and given the same 48 diver value as the Reichstalder. So they may, they might have counter uh, countermarked that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it, it doesn't say. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So we were just talking about metals and currency and like kind of how at that time metals were really important to currency, which was important to the state's control over things like labor. Yeah. Um, among other things that we're more familiar with. Mobilizing other organizations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and how metals were kind of the medium of fungibility, as, as you might say, between currencies. Um, so the next thing on our list that we're kind of reviewing for uh, 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 products they traded, services they traded, which we really wanted to just like hit on a few of them because because they're they got huge canes. They got huge. <laughs> yeah. and, and like these days, we think about these things, and, and because we're in this global capitalist uh, system where a lot of these things are just part of the network, part of the system, we don't think about it too much. Yeah, and so we don't necessarily recognize, even if we know they're important, we don't rec- recognize exactly. Um, the we, we kind of project our daily life backwards and yeah so we, yeah like we don't think about the fact that people weren't getting their daily needs met through the market right right exactly the market was for specific things exactly yeah, yeah. and and how in the old Fucking days for William example shit <laughs> okay so so uh, moving on so metals and currency, blah blah blah. So shipbuilding was another one on their list. That's inherently obvious why that would yeah, be important. Yeah, they have to do that, right? So they, yeah. they have to get good at it. They have to do it for themselves. Suddenly they're like, well, by the way, we invest could, in sail cargo. Sell it to others. You're looking for an investment. Yeah, yeah. We could we could sell space. We could sell the ships themselves. We could help others as contractors. We could help them build to their build their own. Mm-hmm. Um. After that, uh, in our list. We have spices. So before we get to spices, because it's a big fucking deal, it's like the crux yeah. of this entire thing. I'm just gonna go sugarcane, silk, porcelain, sugarcane. Okay, Europeans, is that from South America or did it come from it's, somewhere else? Oh shit, I can't remember. But we know obviously uh, Brazil is a big source, right? Yeah, anybody who's studied colonialism has understood sugarcane as something that ended up mostly in the South American and Caribbean region and was a major source of a wealth for european owners and be horrific slave yeah. uh, slave trade and slave treatment um and sugarcane itself i grew up in a sugarcane producing region it's delightful but it's hard to harvest it's a little brutal on your hands and back um and and, and so forth but it's also basically pure sugar in a shaft right which is my poor name um so <laughs> but <laughs> uh, after that is silk which the Chinese made and almost nobody else. And so it was both uh, rare and high quality and fireproof. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right, right. And it was also exotic in that kind of, you know, annoying. It feels nice. It was just from where else, you know. Yeah, it feels nice. You can make beautiful things with silk kimonos yeah probably some other stuff yeah like you could weave these intricate designs into (laughs) silk that you couldn't with other fabrics Uh. or that would just be like it would take years of your life to do um similarly you can can do the uh diva curl system um you have to have a silk pillowcase though (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, you know a little more difficulty there Mm -hmm. um which of course leads to more value um in the in the uh 
market, if you will. So then you also have porcelain, similar uh, story, same basic origins. Yeah. Um, also difficult to make, kind of a secret. Uh, silk and, and porcelain both were kind of trade secrets as well. Um, after that, we have also like livestock, tea, grain, rice, soybeans, wine, all these like organic um, foodstuffs. So rice, yes, came from more or less Asia. Mm-hmm. Soybeans came from more or less Asia. Wine, question mark. You know, you could get it from Europe. Obviously, there's a lot of good European wine, but I think that the fact that they got more wine yeah. from elsewhere, and wine does often have a bit of an origin story attached to what you're drinking. Yeah. So there's that too. So maybe, like silk. Maybe porcelain. we're even getting like Huangju and sake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you know, this is fucking great. Yeah. I haven't had this before. Right. Grain like rice, you know, just maybe eh. even fermented yak's milk from Tibet. Holy Who knows? shit! Right. Right. <laughs> little little pink milk. <laughs> Um, and then tea uh, is fantastic. You love tea. Yes, I, I, I love tea, but I don't love tea the way that you love tea. Right? Like, I do. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Let's just leave it at that. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, I don't need you to like start rubbing your chest or anything. You know. Um, well, I, I am. I'm already jacking off. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Chris is turned the other very, way. You can't tell because we're on microphones. Right, right. He's just turned his whole body around. <laughs> uh, the, the, the windows are, are fogged. Uh, <laughs> 